If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's been said that you can draw more bees with honey than you can with vinegar, or you can move a donkey more effectively with a carrot than you can with a stick. Well, if chapter 1 was the honey, there was an earnest plea there from an apostle who loves God's people, summoning them to embrace this call of election uh, to God's grace in Christ there was a, a gentle summons to continue to grow in character of Christ's likeness, then chapter 2, you might say, is the vinegar. Chapter 2 is the, the stick. It's a heavier tone. But a heavy tone in the Bible isn't meant to, to drive away God's people, but rather to state things so clearly that we would not miss them. Some things are true in this world. Some things are false God not only rescues his own people, but he does, in fact, punish those who defy him. How you receive this message uh, might say something about your own heart spiritually. We want to be humble and tender when we approach God's word, for it speaks to all of God's people. So we begin at chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to pick up the very last verse of the previous chapter, and then we'll read through verse 10. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man... But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. This is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. Oh, Father God, we ask for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit, so that even as we come to this text, that You would open our eyes and our ears, so that we would hear and see what You would say and show to Your people. And Father, I ask that you would work through and in spite of all of my uh, infirmities, all of my sins, all of my weaknesses, my own frailty, just simply to speak your word for the good of your people. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. When we uh, planted this church alongside 
many of you. In those very earliest days, I, I spoke of the importance of what it would mean to be winsome. And when I spoke about winsome, what I meant was our posture towards one another, our posture towards visitors, but also our posture toward the watching community. We wanted to be a place of warmth and kindness. After all, right, we're recipients of God's grace, recipients of the loving kindness of a father who tenderly reaches out, and we want to be those who reflect that same tenderness and warmth. We want to be welcoming. We want to be humble. We want to be friendly at what I meant by winsome. And yet, while warm and winsome is important, you could never sacrifice truth on the altar of winsome. And that explains why Peter's approach here is, well, it's anything but winsome. In fact, his tone is sharp. It's very pointed. Words like condemnation and judgment and hell. In fact, the very definition of a fire and brimstone sermon is cited here when it references Sodom and Gomorrah. So chapter 2, let's put it in context. Peter is answering a question that we didn't really even know we were asking. And that is, why does the return of Christ matter so much to us now? Why do we need to be reminded of the importance of growing in godliness? Because the resurrection of Christ creates a following of of Jesus' people that is not a philosophy of religion to be pondered as if it could be external to your mind or your body, but rather it is a historical fact that changes everything, changes everything about your future, Everything about your hope, about how you live and whom you serve. And so here's a little imprisoned apostle in Rome, and God uses his pen to make sure that you and I become earnest to confirm our calling, earnest to live out the faith that we've been given so that our lives are actually being transformed by truth. This is an example for you of how the Bible draws boundaries so that we are not left to be confused. Some things are true. Some things are false. There really is a heaven. There really is a hell. In the, right, in the Bible, let me give two definitions before we go further. In the Bible, the righteous are not those without sin. They are rather those who are counted righteous because they look in faith to God through Jesus Christ. That's righteousness. In the Bible, the wicked are simply those who refuse to repent refuse to admit their need for forgiveness and mercy, refuse to come running to the one offer of rescue through Christ. And so here's what our text is about. God's track record proves He rescues the righteous and punishes the wicked. And so the passage before us provides what I would call false teacher indicators, Old Testament illustrations, and then timely illustrations. Indicators, illustrations, inspiration. We'll start with false teacher indicators. I think just about every car that you could drive today will have those little flashing lights that come up on your dashboard. They're, they're there to tell you when something's going wrong underneath the hood. And so you might have a battery light or you might have a temperature light or a tire pressure light. Well, these first three verses serve as something like that, like an indicator light. If you see these, says Peter, then you should be aware of the danger. 
And so as the last chapter explained how God gave us truth in His written Word, it said, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke as God carried them along through the Holy Spirit. Clearly, some things are true, right? These are the indicators of false teachers. First, he says, they arise from among God's people. Look at verse 1. False teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So in the past, false teachers arose. Today, false teachers arise. And then he uses this future tense to tell us it's going to be an ongoing issue throughout the history of the church. This means two things for us. And I don't want you to begin to look to your left and look to your right. Is he a false teacher? Is she a false teacher? Certainly, it's true, of course, that in our lowercase c church at Christ Pres in Auburn, you could have false teaching arise here. I've seen it. You've seen it. Pastors or elders or teachers who begin to interpret the Scriptures in ways that are simply not true, in ways that are new or different from the historic Christian faith. And when that happens, you can almost always connect the dots to a change of, of behavior because doctrine follows behavior. They begin to live more licentiously, would Peter say. But I I think perhaps the more pressing danger in a world where you can access any teaching at all by way of the internet is to listen to false teachers that arise from what I would call the big C church, the big universal church, a new Christian author, a Christian conference speaker. Perhaps somebody gives this guy a book deal. He's got a big following. He has something new to say, an angle that nobody in all the history of the church has ever thought of. And so what you find is that false teachers exist under the the big umbrella of Christianity. That's why you and I must learn to listen carefully to what is being taught. Is this consistent with what Jude calls the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Is this message consistent with the Bible's teaching about who Christ is, why He came, the implications of His return upon our lives? Does this message in itself produce godliness or does it produce in us something like calling evil good? Does the message actually hang on the promise of the return and final judgment of Christ? So this first indicator that's given to us, false teachers come from among us. Secondly, you'll notice that they move in stealth. Verse 1 says, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So to be really clear, a false teacher will not enter any sphere and say, hey, I just want to let you know, everybody, I'm a false teacher. I'm bringing destructive heresies. That's not the way it works. No, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they move in stealth. And that is a heresy, is a teaching, a way of thinking, a way of living that is different, perhaps unique from what was handed down from Christ to His apostles and has continued down through the centuries. Several years ago, I had a conversation, I may have shared this with some of you, with a really sweet Episcopal priest in the town that I served in. Conversation was about the issue of biblical interpretation, how you understand Scripture, what is really true here. And in our conversation, I contended that the Scripture doesn't change. 
And I said to her, we might apply things differently in various times and circumstances, but the meaning itself doesn't change. Then she shared with me her belief that Christianity was an evolving, changing movement. There's the distinct difference. Does God's Word change or does it stay the same? And how you answer that question determines what you are open to hear. Because if you think that the unchanging God has given His Word so that it can evolve, then you have the precise opening to teach heresy. In fact, all the false teaching in the church can be traced back to one single starting point. That is the nature and the authority of the Bible. In the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers began to speak of sola scriptura, which of course is the doctrine that that Scripture is the only final full authority for God's people in matters of faith and life. And so, uh, the, the final authority is not the Pope of Rome. That's what they were saying. We might likewise say it's not the the trendy hipster with skinny jeans and a new idea. Nothing against skinny jeans. I could never wear them. But that's the reason the Westminster Confession of Faith, in fact, so many other of the ancient creeds, begins with the issue of Scripture. To be very clear, a false teacher would never say or think, hey, I've got a new idea in order to destroy the centuries-old truth of the Bible. But it's that opening to move in stealth by simply saying, well, you've got to adapt the message. You've got to see it evolving into a new context. The apostles would say, no. We are holding tightly because the very nature of the historic Christian faith is that it is a, a truth which has been entrusted to the apostles and then to God's people so that we might preserve it and hold it. First indicator, false teachers arise from among us. Second, they move in stealth. Third, a false teacher's life, L-I-F-E, will prove, prove his lie, L-I-E. That's what Peter means in verse 1 when he says denying the master who bought them. He doesn't mean that a false teacher comes in and says, I don't, I don't know Christ. But rather he comes in and denies Christ with his actions and this, this concept of a master who bought them. You and I need to overcome our thoughts of chattel slavery in the United States and we need to think about the old system of indentured servanthood which would have existed in the ancient world. In fact, a large portion of the population was themselves enslaved by that. This isn't a verse about falling away from the faith but about a person who, having been purchased by the Lord, proves in their actions that they never really belonged to Christ in the first place. Christ is their master. But you see, if Christ is your master, then you become increasingly, consistently living under His authority. And likewise, it wouldn't be a very destructive heresy for somebody to say, listen to me, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Christ. It would be a destructive heresy. For a person to say, I am a Christian, I follow Christ. And consistent with following Christ is a life where the cross and the atonement and the resurrection and the call to repentance and faith has absolutely no bearing on how I live in this life. 
That's why verse 2 says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. One commentator says what attracts people to these false teachers is that they advocate a licentious lifestyle, and therefore many people are only too glad to follow their example. What does it mean to blaspheme? That's a word that is almost gone in our language. Well, it, it originally meant to speak irreverently about God. In modern language, you might say to, to curse or to, to slander. And so when those who wear the name Christian affirm and celebrate and practice things which God himself calls evil, they are denying the master who could have bought them and rescued them from evil and destruction. And so their lives tell a lie about what God says is true. Here's where this is tricky. In real life, you know people, I know people who will say, I love Jesus. I believe in Him. I am following Him. And you and I are tempted to read that all that matters is the sincerity with which they speak. Look, He's like us. He loves Jesus. He's not a bad guy. But friends, a false teacher's life will prove his lie. And so you must not trust your perception of sincerity as if sincerity was equal to truth. You can't even trust your affection for that person as if your fondness for them could override the need for truth. God tells us what's true. False teacher indicators. First, false teachers arise from among God's people. Number two, they move in stealth. Third, a false teacher will prove his life by his lie. Fourthly and finally, they are headed for destruction. You notice it in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So quick side note, what's their motivation? What's the motivation for a false teacher? He says it's greed. And you and I think, well, greed, well, that's hungry for money. But of course, there's other types of greed. There's a hunger for affirmation, for likes, for a little following, a big following. Subscribers, crowds. Turn on the television. What preachers have TV deals? Could it be that there's a correlation? Not 100%, but a correlation between a motivation of greed and the message which ultimately gets declared. Between a preacher who is entertaining enough to get a TV deal and one who would exploit people with false words. Peter would say, even when it looks like God's slow to deal with the issue, even when it looks like he's just letting the false teaching go on and on and on, even as destructive heresies continue, lies about our king lead people astray, Peter says, make sure you know, God's not idle. He's not asleep. He promises to deal with it through condemnation and destruction. That's actually not a gentle warning at all. How can we use this instruction in our own lives? Well, number one, I've borrowed these from another pastor. We should be careful 
not to make the category of false teaching so broad that it includes everyone outside of our own camp, right? Well, well, they're not in the PCA, so therefore they're heretics. The other danger, of course, would be to make the category so narrow that it couldn't possibly include those within your own camp. Well, I mean, he's in the PCA. He's like Eric, or Eric's like him. No, we should be watchful. God's track record proves he rescues the righteous and punishes the wicked. We've looked at false teacher indicators. Now let's look at Old Testament illustrations. Uh, This whole section hinges, I don't know if you noticed it, it's on an if-then clause. If you took the ACT or the SAT, some other standardized test, here's a structure. A series of three Old Testament illustrations. They all begin with the word if. And Peter is leading to this major premise of the entire argument that God does, in fact, know how to rescue the godly and punish the wicked. And so these Old Testament illustrations provide three examples of God's judgment. They also provide two examples of preservation. And I believe that all of these are found in the book of Genesis, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. At first reading, most people would presume that Peter is referring to what we think of as the the often spoken of rebellion of, of Lucifer. Wherein Satan and several angels rebelled against God sometime before the creation of the world. They They fell from heaven. There are hints to that account in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But Peter is, is writing to an audience, and you and I need to recognize this. He's writing to an audience that has read and studied things different from the things that you and I have read and studied. Naturally, most of them would have been familiar with Greek literature. They would have been familiar with Jewish literature, something that almost all of us lack. And so we need to recognize when we come to this that they are, in a sense, wearing a pair of glasses that you and I do not have on. Most commentators who study this believe that he's referring back to the account in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And there it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. It's that weird passage that you've read about the Nephilim, the mighty men of old. The phrase, the sons of God, was understood by most Jews as a, as a reference to angelic beings. And in that account, in Genesis chapter 6, God gives the very clear impression. He is, absolutely un, uh, uh, he is absolutely bothered and unimpressed and even ready to destroy the wickedness that has occurred. It's immorality. In fact, it's sexual immorality. Rebellious angels, I don't know how somehow jumped across the species from angelic beings to humans, and they did it for the purpose of sex. Jude chapter 6, excuse me, Jude verse 6 refers to the exact same thing. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then Jude goes on to connect that episode with Sodom and Gomorrah, saying here, it is is likewise a sexual immorality issue, which is what Peter is saying here. So both Peter and Jude are referring 
to a writing that they were familiar with, common Jewish interpretation, a book called Enoch 1. Something the first readers would have understood. All right, but here's the deal. Whether it is a pre-creation rebellion of Satan and his angels, or whether it is the Genesis 6 account, the point is exactly the same. If God did not spare angels who rebelled against him, he will not spare humans who do the same. Second example, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. When my kids were little, uh, they had a, a Fisher Price Noah's Ark set. You might have seen this thing. Chubby, short, Noah, a staff in his hand, a pair of zebras, a pair of giraffes, a pair of lions. It's all very cute. Not surprisingly, Fisher-Price did not include anyone in agony drowning or floating bodies for the water. Most of us think of the story of Noah's Ark, uh, the story of this flood as the story of Noah's Ark, and we've been taught to sing about God telling Noah to build him an arky arky. And my favorite verse, of course, is gopher barky barky. The Bible says, of course, that God deluged the world with water as an act of judgment. The fact is, the Bible doesn't cast it as anything cute. And yet, in His mercy, God spared Noah and his family, eight persons in all, from this judgment. And to be clear, they were saved by grace. But God was under absolutely no obligation to extend grace to anyone who spurned Him, to anyone who refused to repent. That's why the rest of the Bible looks back on this flood account as the first example of the fact that God really can, really does, judge those who sin against Him with no repentance. In fact, divine justice demands God must judge unrepentant evil. He did it in Noah's day, and the Bible says He will do it again at the coming, at the end of the age. So you might wonder, now how is Noah a herald of righteousness? Because Noah's words and his actions are a living testimony in, the, in his day that, of the fact that God punishes evil. And so as he builds the ark, surely people said to him, Hey, Noah, what are you building? Oh, I'm building an ark. I don't know if you've seen it, Noah, but there's no water anywhere close by. It's not even raining. And so as he built this decades-long project, testified to God's right to judge evil and his willingness to spare the repentant. Noah surely said... God says he's going to judge. Would you join us inside the ark? It's the one place where we'll be saved. And they looked at the sky and they kept walking. The Bible even gives us a sense that Noah was mocked and jeered. The third illustration, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. 
It's a reference back to Genesis 18 and 19. The Bible gives us hints that all of these illustrations are connected to sexual immorality because Sodom was a city that was characterized by homosexuality. And it is a message which is deeply relevant, in fact, deeply sobering in our day. God is the one who created sex. He's the one who gets to draw the parameters around what he has created. And God condemned these entire cities to extinction. And the Bible says they serve as an ongoing example of what's going to happen to the unrepentant ungodly. There are some of you who will immediately hear this and you will have an overly tender conscience. I have sexual sins in my past. I have other sins in my past. And so you might hear this with with fear and trembling, but brothers and sisters, if you have already brought these sins to Christ in repentance, if you've already clung to His sacrifice to pay for your sins, you do not need to keep grieving a debt which has already been paid. Yes, your sins were serious, but you are counted righteous in Christ alone. Perhaps the more dangerous would be that someone would hear this with conscience seared. And you think, well, those warnings are really long ago. And the future judgment that we're talking about is, is, is far down the road. But friends, if you have sexual sin, in fact, any other current sin that's thriving as an unrepentant part of your life, these three illustrations of judgment actually speak because there is still time to repent. Do you see the beauty of that? The tenderness of that? The hope of that? You and I would actually misuse these warnings if we ignore them. But we would also misuse them if we we run further down into a hole of shame and guilt. Peter would say, come out of the hole and run to Christ. And so three examples of punishment, but you also recognize there's two examples of deliverance. And both are clearly examples where righteousness is not a status that is earned by works, but by faith alone. One is Noah, verse 7, and then, excuse me, one is Noah, and then the other is Lot. It says, verse 7, he rescued righteous Lot. If you read the account of Noah, Genesis chapter 9, drunk man lying in his tent, naked, right on the heels of God's deliverance. You know for a fact Noah is not counted righteous by some impossible standard of perfection. And if you've read Lot anywhere in Genesis, you remember this is a guy who chooses the very best land even while Abraham has to wander. You find him near the end of the story. He is drunk in a cave probably unknowingly a victim of incest. Lot is counted righteous, but it's not by some impossible standard. In fact, he's not even counted righteous by some moderate standard of goodness. Both men and their families are rescued for no other reason but this. They listened to the Lord and they embraced His offer of salvation. Today, There is one way to be rescued from judgment. There is one way to be counted as righteous in the sight of God, and it is the mercy of God, which is still available through Jesus Christ. God's track record proves He rescues the righteous and punishes the wicked. So we've looked at false teacher indicators, Old Testament illustrations. I'm going to close with a timely 
inspiration. I want you to imagine that you could go back and you could talk to Noah in his day. Or you could go and you could speak to Lot before Sodom was destroyed. What would you say to them? How would you encourage them in the midst of what they were facing? I think verse 7 confronts an odd tension in the text. Peter calls him righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Noah and Lot are more similar to many of you than you might ever expect. They are not perfect men. They have plenty of sins of their own. In fact, the Bible never tries to whitewash them. But they are, in fact, looking towards God for mercy. And that meant, while they were looking toward God for mercy, that they experienced a kind of torment just by simply watching and living among the wickedness that was around them. What would you say to them? Peter suggests that you tell them to press forward in faith. You're cleansed from your former sins. He'd say, be all the more diligent to confirm your own calling, your own salvation. But I think he'd also say it's a fact. When God's people live and walk through this world, a world full of lies, a world full of evil, you will be tormented by what you see. You will be tormented by what you hear. It would be more dangerous if you were not tormented. In fact, if you were so comfortable with your environment that the environment itself was a draw to you. How do I know Peter would say this to Noah and Lot? Well, because it's exactly what he's saying to you. He's comparing the ancient world in the days before the flood into the world in which you live. He's comparing the days of Sodom and Gomorrah to the days in which you live. It has sometimes been better. It has more often been worse. But God's people have always faced and felt this tension of walking as sojourners in a desert land. And so here's a timely inspiration. If God didn't spare angels who sinned, if God didn't spare the ancient world, if God condemned two entire cities to distinction, to extinction, and yet while dropping the hammer of judgment, he rescued eight in the days of Noah, he rescued three in the days of Lot. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is a God who rescues the righteous and punishes the wicked. And so, for every sincere believer, it's meant to inspire perseverance. It's meant to inspire comfort. Press forward in your faith. I've been cleansed of my former sins. You've been cleansed of your former sins. Therefore, we should be all the more diligent to confirm God's calling of salvation in our own lives. And somebody might say, Eric, but it's really bad out there. There's people who proclaim that the very things which God calls sexual sin must be permissible, must be available, must be even worthy of honor. Whole churches which have been taken away by the agenda built on sexual immorality. And Peter says, hey, notice verse 10. I especially 
know how to deal with those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And so, Christian, your gut reaction to life in this world in an increasingly post-Christian environment might be one of constant grief, constant complaining. What does the Bible say? It says, begin with the evaluation of your own heart. Peter is not writing to the civil authorities of his day. He's writing to a church. He's writing to you. And he certainly would warn us about false teachers. He certainly means to comfort us in this evil of this world. God's dealt with this before. He knows what he's doing. You can relax. God has a track record of taking care of just this kind of thing. But when you read this warning and you consider the world around you, it is meant to move your heart to pity, but also to praise. You gaze at the coming Christ, and you see He rescues the righteous, and He does, in fact, punish the wicked. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that You would bind it to our hearts so that we might be spurred along to make our calling and election sure, but moreover, to take comfort that you are a sovereign king who reigns. God, we thank you for your mercy. We would cling to it through Jesus, we pray. Amen.